Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kentaro Kawamori, co-founder and CEO of Persephone, a climate disclosure and garbage management platform that's raised over $114 million in funding. Kentaro, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yes. Well, I am an entrepreneur. I'm a software guy and a dad, husband, so all those things at the same time. You know, I started my career, oddly enough, in esports way before people were making a million bucks a year playing games. Uh, for us, that was the very beginning of the industry, but uh, that was really the beginning of my journey when I started working in big online digital distributed business models. Eventually made my way working primarily in big enterprise software, companies like VMware, Red Hats, and the partner channel, Microsoft, so on and so forth. And then uh, eventually found myself after a stint doing strategy consulting at Accenture, doing big digital transformation work and uh, ended up working for one of my customers, which was Chesapeake Energy, a very large natural gas and oil producer in the Fortune 500. And that's where I took the, the gig of chief digital officer. And that was a really pivotal moment in my career. One, because it, uh, it was sort of the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey where I met my co-founding team and many of my investors, but it was also where we discovered the the big challenge that we're solving today with Persephone around carbon accounting and climate management tools. And when you were growing up, you know, did you have any hint that you'd eventually want to do something in climate or did that just really evolve throughout your career? Indirectly, for sure. Uh, you know, we, did, we certainly didn't think about it as climate at the time, but I was born in Japan and then grew up in Germany. And Germany, as you might know, is a huge, huge sustainability-oriented country and culture, uh, you know, longtime global leader on the global stage of renewable energy production, uh, one of the most prolific producers of solar energy, for example. And today, of course, uh, you know, much different energy discussion thanks to the natural gas crisis and the Russia situation. But, you know, we grew up in a household that was in a small farming community in central Germany and sustainability was just kind of the core of everything you did in a community like that, uh, especially in post-World War II Germany. Sustainability was just synonymous with scarcity, and it was about resource preservation and reuse and what we call circularity today in the industry. And so we grew up walking the woods every day and hanging out on the farms. And for us, again, we didn't necessarily think about that as sustainability or climate work. It was just how we were raised and so, you know, as time went on, I've always been a very, very passionate environmentalist. And uh, one day when I got the job offer for working at an oil and gas company, that was a pretty pivotal and seminal moment in my career and in my life where I realized if I was ever going to be able to do any work or be able to orient my career in technology, especially towards the cause, then understanding the big emissions problem from the inside out would be a critical part of that journey. Nice. That's awesome. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. What CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Most admired CEOs are Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Steve Jobs. <laughs> I'm joking. You, you, told, you, said, you said specifically, I shouldn't say that, so I had to just uh, jab you there a little bit. Of course, all so great CEOs. Um, you know, One of my favorites to follow over the last few years has been Eric Yuan at, at Zoom. 
I don't know Eric personally, though interestingly enough, he dropped me a note after one of our fundraising announcements uh, a couple of years ago out of the blue, just a super kind and, and nice guy and offered to, to be helpful along the way. I love hearing him talk. I love his philosophy on things. He's just such an even-keeled, long-term visionary and what he did in a very established and, and old-thinking company and in a category that desperately needed disruption in the face of people pushing back and telling him his idea was stupid and was never going to work. You know, it's such a great story of perseverance and, and vision throughout that. And I just love how humble and how, you know, even keel he is, which is, you know, sort of very antithetical to the huge bravado of many Silicon Valley CEOs. And he's definitely one of my favorites over the last few years. Nice. That's such a good call out. And what about books? What book would you say has had the greatest impact on you? And this can be a business book or it can also be a personal book. You know, one of my all-time favorites, and I'm, I'm really happy to see him return to the, the helm of Disney, is Bob Iger's Ride of a Lifetime, which is his accounting of his time as CEO of Disney during his first stint, which he's just now officially returned to that job recently. And it's such a, one, great corporate history of Disney, but two, uh, just a fascinating recounting of you know him turning a very, very old company from you know a traditional media company and you know a parts company to a very technology-driven, you know, streaming company today, but probably also one of the best examples of, of how to use M&A and strategic thinking and long-term vision to transform a company. He's, he's largely regarded today as maybe the greatest acquirer of all time of companies between, you know, Marvel and Lucasfilms and, and many, many others. And so, yeah, I highly, highly recommend that book if you haven't read it. Nice. Yeah, I read that. I followed him quite a bit. There were some really cool videos when he officially announced he was coming back. I don't know if you saw those, but it was him walking with like his wife and security just walking around Disneyland. And you could tell like the, uh, the amount of like power and influence that guy had was pretty impressive. It looked like you know, Tom Brady entering the field. <laughs> no, I see that, but I'll definitely check it out now. Nice. Yeah, it's really good. I don't know if you listen to the All In podcast, but um, how they were describing Bob Iger is that he's just uh, a deal junkie. And if you go through the book, you know, it's just deal after deal after deal. and that's, you know, their theory about why he had to come back is he just can't stay away from doing deals. That's you know, all he knows. And that's what he loves to do. I can relate. You know, the deal making is, is such a great activity and the adrenaline that comes with that. And, uh, you know, the astounding thing with him is the, just the track record of successful deals. I mean, most companies are people that do that amount of deals at that scale. You know, you're lucky if you have a 50% success track record, but, you know, doing multiple transformative ones in such a short succession of time is just astounding. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's switch gears here a bit and talk about what you're building today. So can we just start with the origin story? Yes. So it really comes back to the point in my career at Chesapeake Energy that I was describing, uh, where I was responsible for the IT and digital innovation teams. And along the way, I learned about this program called the Greenhouse Gas Reporting Program that the EPA had enacted in 2011. And it regulates about 17 distinct industries, all in high industrials, you know, high emission sort of categories. And during the Obama administration, the EPA basically said, if you were in one of these 17 subcategories of industries, which included oil and gas and various subcategories of that, then you must do a form of what's called carbon accounting. And then you must disclose what your emissions are from those activities. And we were subject to providing such accounting and such disclosures, which made us, you know, one of a very, very small number of companies and industries in the world that was doing any form of this, especially on a regulated fashion. And, you know, you, you think about, you know, providing the federal government or any regulator any sort of disclosure 
especially one that involves complex math, you would hope that there's sort of good systems and audits and systems of record to be able to do that. Well, even to this day, uh, the vast majority of companies do that with spreadsheets, which one is, of course, phenomenally inefficient, but two, you know, is quite concerning if you think about that from a data accuracy and reliability and trust perspective. And so, you know, quite literally, I was a professional digital transformer, you could say. That's what folks paid me to do when I was a consultant. It just screamed, you know, to be a space that was ripe for disruption. And then really, we started seeing the early signs of the market pressures and the macro creating a category and creating a market here. And that was when this shifted from being an an environmental agenda and a pollution-oriented agenda only to investors perking up and saying, our stakeholders care about this topic and our stakeholders want more transparency into the emissions profiles of companies. And that really manifested itself for the oil and gas industry by large asset managers, specifically public asset managers. Think, you know, 401k and pension fund administrators like State Street and BlackRock and Fidelity started sort of pushing out into the market in 2018, 2019, and really building some muscle and learning. You know, if we were to go out to the market and ask everybody to calculate their carbon footprint and disclose it, what would that look like? How do we do that? And so we started seeing some early pressures of that. And it was towards the back part of 2019 when my co-founders and I, you know, really formed the thesis and said, well, if, if this is happening now, it's just the first of what will be a, a cascading set of domino effects that first manifests itself in the institutional investors asking for these things. And that ultimately will manifest itself into regulators stepping in and saying, you know, there has to be frameworks and standards around this, which I know you're a big uh, Bitcoin guy it is almost exactly corollary to what's happened in crypto the last few years, right? Is regulators tend to step in when investors and capital markets, you know, start forming around these sort of things. And eventually, you know, especially the SEC steps in and they create frameworks and reporting disclosures around those things. And our thesis was basically, we would see carbon footprint disclosure requests become a securities regulator, financial regulator, mandated disclosure agenda item. And we started the company in January, 2020. And a mere days after we incorporated the company, Larry Fink of BlackRock came out with his annual CEO letter. And that was basically a big seminal moment in the ESG and climate markets to date, where he basically said, you know, climate risk is financial risk. And it was really the start of what's been a pretty whirlwind growth in climate tech over the last three years. He's going to be your biggest like unpaid spokesperson, right? I feel like he is just hammering this ESG message out into the world. He is. And, you know, it's really interesting. He's now caught in the middle. You know, he's getting sort of assaulted from both sides, the far left and the far right. You know, one is saying you're not doing enough and the other is saying you're doing too much. But yeah, Larry is is without a doubt one of the best advocates for this topic. And he's doing it exactly the right way. He looks at it from a fiduciary standpoint. He's not, you know, whatever people are saying, trying to pursue some sort of woke agenda as is being categorized by some. He's saying, you know, my thesis is that the science shows climate transition is going to destroy economic value for many industries and many companies. You know, whether that's a, a fire burning the, the vineyards in California, a hurricane shutting down the platform for an oil and gas company, you know, one of a hundred other climate related events that will disrupt business. And, you know, we have to create a level of muscle within corporations that, you know, prepares them for resiliency and, and to preserve economic and investor value. So that's, that's his job, right? He's a fiduciary for something like almost $10 trillion in capital at this point. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> now let's talk about the actual problem then. So if you were speaking to customers, you know, how do they articulate the problem, the pain point that you solve? And then how do they articulate the benefits that they get using the platform? 
the core of our product is is a carbon accounting system. And think of that very similar to what financial accounting does. It takes in a wide variety of data sources and financial accounting that could be, you know, inventory sold, inventory held, you know, sales, processed, so on and so forth. And ultimately, you know, what pops out is a gap compliance, you know, cash or accrual basis number that tells you essentially how much money do you have, how much money did you make, so on and so forth. Same exact concept for carbon accounting. There's a methodology called the greenhouse gas protocol. You can think of that like GAP. And our system of records and accounting platform has codified that very similar to what SAP or Oracle do for financial accounting. And so if you're a company and you're trying to understand what your carbon footprint is, you have to understand the carbon footprint from a huge swath of activity, everything from the electricity that you use in your buildings to the air travel that you do as an employee base to the food that you cater into the offices, all of it comes with a carbon footprint. So we take in all of those, quite literally almost every single possible type of data source within a company and are able to turn that through the carbon accounting methodologies into verifiable and auditable carbon footprint calculations that ultimately are used either in you know disclosures or reporting what it is that could be used for investor reporting is generally the most frequent use case today. An investor asks a company and says, what's your carbon footprint? I need you to disclose this because I'm trying to disclose this to somebody. And then secondly is, of course, there's been a huge proliferation of net zero commitments. Companies that want to reduce uh, their carbon footprint ultimately get to net zero or carbon neutrality. And in order to do that, of course, you have to know how much you're emitting in the first place and where it's coming from. And so really those are the two primary use cases is, you know, disclosure and actually decarbonization management. And when it comes to gathering that data, are you also gathering it from the company's partners and service providers? You know, for example, on my end, I'm an investor and advisor in a Bitcoin mining company that you know, is having some issues in regards to the impact it's having on the climate. And you know, we embarked on this journey. And one of the things that we had to do was go and get suppliers to provide us data. Uh, the suppliers were based in China. And I said, no chance we're giving you any of this information. So do you have to deal with that where you, know, you have to convince suppliers and people you work with to provide that data? Or is it you know, separate and is that not data that you collect? You can. And the ideal scenario is that suppliers are giving you data. But to your point, you know, if you look at that at scale, the only companies that are going to be successful you know, getting a very granular level of data from a wide set of suppliers are the most powerful supply chains in the world. So think Fortune 100 companies. And, you know, first you have to have the wherewithal to know what to ask, where to ask for it, what to do with it. And then you have to have the economic power and prowess to be able to force a supplier to, to give this to you. 99.9% of the rest of the world isn't going to be able to do that. So yes, we do that where companies can and want to do that, though they're the extreme minority for the just the practical reasons that limit that. The accounting methodology was designed for being able to work in this scenario because it's just expected and designed to understand that, you know, not every supplier is going to supply. And in many cases, the supplier actually can supply it because let's say you're a small equipment manufacturer in China. Maybe you have a few dozen employees and you make some niche sort of part, probably don't really have any data. You, you don't run IT systems. You, you know, you're largely a paper-based company. And so supplying the data might literally be impossible because it doesn't exist in a digital format. And so accounting methodology provides for various levels of proxy calculations, estimations, and actual calculations. And the guidance basically is that you should use the best data that's available to you. And the use case you're describing, I actually know quite well, because one of the leaders in Bitcoin mining 
reached out to us about this exact scenario and we went quite deep on that topic. Nice. That's super interesting. And can you give us an idea of the type of traction and adoption that you're seeing with customers? So just any numbers that you're okay with sharing? Yeah, it was a pretty massive 2022 for us. Uh, so we started the company in 2021. Uh, it was really close to our R&D. Uh, 2022, we were really finding product market fit and went into our beta phase. So we had about a dozen customers at the beginning of 2023. January 2022, we went into general availability of the platform. And uh, today, at the beginning of 2023, we've got over 200 customers and anticipate being probably two to three times that size by the end of the year. So it was absolutely explosive growth growing from you know about a dozen customers at the beginning of 22 to over 200 now. We expect, a, like I said, a, sort of a two to three X growth this year. And I think all of your funding rounds were done in one year. Is that correct? So you raised the 114 million or over that just in 2021? <laughs> it was a pretty brutal 2021 for me, uh, <laughs> fundraising. So yeah, we did a convertible note it was structured seed round uh, in 2020. 2021, we had an unexpected opportunity to raise our Series A a little bit earlier than anticipated. That was in April of 21. Just a few months later, we had an opportunity to preempt our Series B. Then shortly thereafter, we had an opportunity to extend that Series B with another really great investor. So yeah, 2021 was basically just a perpetual fundraise for me, which was great timing. And, and we've been extremely fortunate to have a really, really strong set of investors around the table with us. And are those crossover funds? Like, is that Tiger Global and Co. 2 that led that? Because whenever I see the you know, $100 million Series B, that's that, you know, kind of FU money status. And I, I see that driving or being driven a lot from those crossover funds. We have zero crossover funds. I was very intentional not to take capital from crossover funds or Silicon Valley software weighted funds for various reasons. Uh, so our biggest investor is TPG. Uh, a large private equity firm, which has a dedicated ESG and climate investing platform, which is where our capital came from. We have other very climate and energy tech related investors like Prelude Ventures, the Rice Investment Group, which has a long history in energy transition at this juncture. But we also have a really great roster of CVCs on our cap table. So Bain & Company is a really great investor and partner of ours, EDF, which is the largest utility an operator of nuclear and renewable energy facilities out of France and in Europe. We have SNBC, which is one of the mega banks in Japan, and several others. And I think our listeners would be uh, angry at me if I didn't ask. So can you just expand on you know, why you didn't want to have you know, the typical Silicon Valley investors on the cap table or to have them as your investors? Yeah, a few reasons. So I'll say the fundraising in 2021 environment, you know, when we were in 2021, I was sort of already preaching. And I think people were, were sort of tired of hearing me say it at the time that we were in a, a massive run up of hype and bubble. You know, one of my favorite podcasts is Harry Stebbings 20 VC, which I'm guessing you, you may listen to occasionally here and there as well. And, you know, Harry always says, you know, when it comes to fundraising, you play the game that's on the field. And that's kind of how we looked at 2021. And what we wanted was very long-term weighted, you know, intelligent investors on our category. And so number one, Silicon Valley investors in 21 were extremely undereducated on climate tech and on our category specifically. So when our Series B was preempted, it was because Prelude Ventures came to us. They had this thesis for many, many years, but the market timing hadn't been right. And they hadn't found a management team that they also thought was the right one for the right time. And so the last thing I wanted to do as a founder and CEO is spend my time educating my investors on you know where the market's heading. I want my investors to be able to 
help educate me. It's almost the exact reverse, right? And if I was starting an infrastructure software company, for example, then I would want to go to Andreessen, for example, because they're probably the best infrastructure software investing team on the planet. But that was a, a very, very huge driver. And frankly, the crossover, you know, fund capital, I think there's a great place for it. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that were really smart and should have raised capital from funds like that. But if you look at the track record of those funds, you know, just sort of wantonly deploying capital across a huge swath of, and creating really the first broad scale venture index, that was always going to be a highly volatile game. You know, there's a good chance that I think that recovers over the few, next several years, but, you know, taking 50% losses in a year, that's a really dangerous proposition for an entrepreneur to have an investor on the cap table that's going to go through that sort of volatility because that's where a lot of weirdness and board disruption happens. And, and we certainly never wanted to undertake that. Makes sense. Super smart. Now, you've uh, said it a few times, my favorite word, category, and I think you even said something about creating a category there. So let's talk about that. What are your views when it comes to category creation? Is this, in fact, a totally new category that's being created, or is this just reimagining and redefining an existing established market category? Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics. And I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and it was, you know, like, Andrew Chen just did this really great book on network effects. And about time somebody did a great book on category creation. So maybe that's you, Brett, because we need people to be thinking about this a bit more specifically. So for our category of carbon accounting and, and climate software broadly, I would say the solution category was not new. So carbon accounting has existed in consulting formats for a couple of decades now, but hyper, hyper, hyper niche, you know, very tiny market. And there had been two previous attempts to build software for this space and the market timing was just too early. You just couldn't scale economically because the buyers just weren't there. And out of the second time, this is sort of in the early 2010s, there's a couple of really small niche software companies that actually were able to survive up until you know, this boom. Both of those companies ended up selling over the last few years because they were you know, sort of the early first gen, you know, really legacy tech and really couldn't scale into the new needs of it. And so from that perspective, I would say our, you know, the, the solution category wasn't created. I think what was created was the product category, which is modern SaaS climate accounting software. And so I would say us and probably two, maybe three companies, you could say were really the pioneers. All of us started our companies within the same kind of two, three, four, six month period. So yeah, a very, very classic, you know, category creation moment when you look at it from that perspective. And from day one, when you started this, did you think about category creation? Was that idea implanted in your brain or did it just kind of naturally evolve that way as you brought this to market? It was in the very first pitch that I did to my very first investors. I said, we're either going to be phenomenally right or we're going to be phenomenally wrong on this market timing. There's not going to be a whole lot in between. And that was our pitch on day one. And that has been our pitch in every fundraise in between. And, you know, in the meanwhile, in the broader investment market, and I don't mean venture investors investing in the business. I mean, the investors that are creating this critical event and buying pressure for our customers and the regulators that are creating the frameworks that are forcing companies to disclose these things, thankfully have created the market as we predicted. So the thing I always talk about with our team and even externally at times is when I look at how close our founding thesis was to, you know, now in where we just started year four of our business. It is remarkable how little that's changed. And, you know, I've sat on several startup boards. I, I, this is my second venture back startup. I just sold my first one to a Bain and Company. And our thesis has remained remarkably the same, which has always been predicated around this category creation moment. 
So what was it like for you then that, you know, what'd you say was like the day after you launched, Larry Fink had his first letter come out about ESG where you just popping champagne, going crazy. Like, what was that like? So that must have been major validation for the thesis that you had. Definitely not popping champagne since I don't tolerate alcohol very well and I'm the worst hungover guy in the world. And one of the things that uh, people always tell me is I'm terrible at celebrating victories. I just kind of view it as a point on the scorecard and move on to the next thing. So we were certainly elated. We were certainly super excited, uh, but it really didn't change much. It just, I would say, if anything, it was a little bit of a surprise because we didn't expect to see such a major moment that soon. You know, we thought it was probably going to be 12 to 24 months until we would see some sort of critical market event like that. But it provided the perfect amount of pressure for us to continue to move as fast as humanly possible and that, you know, we were on the right track. All right. So no champagne, but hopefully slamming some wheatgrass shots. <laughs> there you go. That's definitely more our style. <laughs> Perfect. Now, what about challenges in terms of go to market? So I'm sure there would be many on this list, but if we had to pick one, what would you say is the greatest go to market challenge and how'd you overcome it? Man, I would say the greatest challenge there, I would think would be the most common challenge that any category creating company faces, which is education in the market. And I love the Gartner hype cycle because I found it is so true throughout my whole career, whether I was working in digital transformation or, you know, I've been a big, a big blockchain and then DLT and Web3 guy like you for some time, you know, you go through this initial period of hype and the companies that are most successful are also the companies that, you know, go to market and educate the market and help shape and form the market at the same time, because people either have such massive, you know, misconceptions about what they need, what they want, what the technology can do, what it should do. And so when you're building a new product in a new category, in a new discipline, going through that first education cycle, that's an enormously challenging thing. And you know, one of the things I always coach our go-to-market and our sales and our marketing teams is that when you're in the early part of a hype cycle, the customer base and the market are saying a whole lot of things, but they don't even know what they're asking for most of the time. You know, And they may be asking for one thing when they need an entirely different thing. And it's because everybody's sort of speaking a different language until that has normalized. And you know, I saw this also in 2012, 2013, I was working in infrastructure software. The world was starting to move from data centers into the cloud. And that's remarkable. You know, I look at this and it's the same exact pattern then as it is now. You just have to go through the cycle and the companies that can educate their customers and provide the confidence of this is what you need. This is how you do it. This is how we get it done. This is how the technology works. This is how you integrate it. Tend to be the winners. And, you know, it's something we talk about often in our businesses. How do you make the complex simple? And boy, there is nothing harder than making something complex at least seem simple because you generally can't make it simple. You you have to make it seem simple for the user. Yeah, absolutely. All right, last question here for you. Let's zoom out into the future. What would you say is the three-year vision for the company? What does it look like by 2026? Next three years are really pivotal in our space with a whole bunch of the biggest financial uh, and securities regulators around the world releasing mandated climate disclosure frameworks. So the SEC is finalizing theirs. It'll be published in, in April. The EU's climate disclosure regulation starts going into effect in January 1, 2024, so less than 12 months from now. And then many other jurisdictions around the world, from Singapore to Australia, the list goes on and on, are, are doing the same thing over the next three years. So the vision for us is to become one of the most prolific and the most trusted named in terms of transparency, in terms of data quality, you know, all of the things that really engender trust for our customers, stakeholders, that's really what we want to be known as. And we want to make that journey as easy as possible for them. Uh, you know, as I always 
give the analogy that imagine the 6,000 pages of the IRS tax code. And if you didn't have TurboTax to help you navigate through that, that's what we want to help our customers do is massively simplify that journey. For us as a company, you know, ultimately, you know, we always built Persephone to be a longstanding, you know, successful company in its own right. And, you know, we certainly want to see, you know, Persephone potentially be one of the first, if not the first, you know, standalone successful climate software company in the public markets at some point. Amazing. I love it. All right. Unfortunately, we are up on time. So we're going to have to wrap for today. Before we do, if people want to follow along with their journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Persephone.com. Anything you could possibly want, you can find there. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk about what you're building and share this vision. This is all super exciting and hope to have you back in a couple of years to talk about all the progress. Thanks for having me, Brett. All right. Good touch.